looking forward to it. Let's open up our, our Bibles, if you would, to Genesis chapter 5, first of all. And then I actually added a, a little bit of something uh, that didn't make it into the bulletin, but it, it will be up on the screen. Genesis chapter 5. And uh, let's just start with verse 18. Is that where we're starting up there? No, we're starting at 21. All right, let's just start in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. And thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. And then go all the way back almost to the end of your New Testament, to the book just before the book of Revelation, the book of Jude. And there's, uh, Jude only has one chapter, so you, you don't bother with Jude 1, whatever, you just say the verses. And so we're going to look at Jude and verse 14. This is what God's Word says to us in Jude, verses 14 and 15. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Did we do verse 16 as well, or did we stop at 15? We stopped at 15. Oh, we did. Good. Okay. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. We believe that your book is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword when your Holy Spirit comes and illumines the words of Scripture, power goes forth. It's power to heal. It's power to cut and wound in order to heal. It's power, power to, to convict the sinner and power to establish the same. We love to hear the stories of your power, but even more, we long to experience it in our midst. So come, Lord, and be present among us and do things that only you can do. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, I want to introduce you this morning to a man of God named Enoch. We actually know very little about Enoch. There's a few sentences about him in Genesis 5. There's a few more sentences about him in Hebrews 11. And there's a little blurb about him in the book of Jude. And so this morning, between the call to worship and the two scripture texts, we've read everything about Enoch in the whole Bible in the context of our public worship this morning. Enoch's chief claim to fame is that he is one of two people in the Bible who never tasted death. Both he and the prophet Elijah were taken bodily into heaven and never had to experience death. The change that will happen on the last day 
to all of the Christians who are still in the body, when the last trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ will rise from their graves, those who are still alive will be changed in an instant from mortal bodies to immortal bodies. And Enoch experienced that without the last trumpet, without death or anything else. He experienced it not at the end of human history, but at the beginning. And so in a way, Enoch was kind of a, a down payment on what God promises to all disciples. You see, our ultimate hope is not a disembodied eternity as a, as a kind of a spirit or a ghost of some kind, but rather a shining, eternal, transformed body walking around and ruling a renewed heaven and a regenerated physical earth where there is no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more evil, no more death. The bodies we will have will be like the body that Jesus got out of the grave with. And it was a durable body. It was a beautiful body. It, it was a recognizable body. And it was an indestructible body. And it was a body that could walk around on earth and eat fish with his friends. And it was a body that could appear in locked rooms. And it was a body that could go up to heaven. And it's a body that's going to come back. He's in that body forever and ever as our Savior and our King. But the most important thing about Enoch is not that God took him bodily to the third heaven instead of letting him taste death in the usual way. As I've said, we will all eventually receive that if we are in Christ. No, no. The, the most important thing about Enoch is how he became the sort of person for whom it was his highest good and pleasure to be with God. You see, loved ones, it's common in our day for people to profess to want to go to heaven when they die and yet to live their lives down here avoiding God as much as they possibly can. And that kind of makes me want to ask them, why in the world do you think that you want to go to heaven when you die? I mean, down here, God chooses to make himself not inevitably obvious. There's plausible deniability that he exists if you want to go there. There's evidence enough to, if you pursue it with an open mind that he does exist, but there's no definitive proof, and God set it up that way. In other words, God set it up so that you have to seek him out. But you can be an atheist, too, if you want to, and remain ignorant. He just set it up that way. And so down here, you can avoid him. Up there? <laughs> no. <laughs> there's, no there's no avoiding God in heaven. He is completely unavoidable. So if you're avoiding him down here, either consciously or subconsciously, why do you want to be in a place where you can't do that anymore? Why do you want to be there? You don't. But of course, the gospel message is about much more than what happens to you after you die. I mean, it is about that, but it's about more than that. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. The gospel message promises pie now. It's pie now. And it's a good and beautiful life lived interactively with a good and beautiful God in the context of a good and beautiful community of people who are on the same journey. And that's the church. It's a strong life. It's a peaceful life. It's a spiritually powerful life. Jesus called it an abundant life. 
In Genesis chapter 5, Moses calls it walking with God. Walking with God. Enoch walked with God. We're going to be talking a little bit about Enoch, but I want you to also look past Enoch for a minute and to think about Enoch's God. It's absolutely true that Enoch walked with God. But the corollary to that is that God also condescended to walk with Enoch. In other words, our God is a God who says, come and walk with me and I will walk with you. And he extends that offer to everyone. Anyone who wants to is invited to just come and receive the Lord Jesus Christ by rethinking your previous thinking, which is repenting, and then placing all of your confidence in Jesus for all of the issues of life and death, and that's just believing savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's got a trillion things to do at any moment, but he says, hey, I'll tell you what, come walk with me. You ever think about that? Everything God's got to manage. There are stars being born and stars dying out. There are black holes and pulsars and quasars that God has to manage. And yet God says, hold on a minute. You, come walk with me. There are eight or nine planets, depending on what you do with Pluto. And God has to manage all of them and their orbits. And, and then there are all, all of those planets almost have moons of at least one sort or another. And God has to manage all those moons. And, and all of that's flinging around and doing its thing all over the place. And, and God says, hey, come walk with me. There are 8 billion people on this planet. Each one is different. And whether they're saved or they're lost, God is still intimately involved and deeply familiar with each one of them. But God calls you by name. And he says, hey, come walk with me. God says, come walk with me. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be your shield and your defender. I will be your provider. I will be your teacher. I will be your comfort in sorrow. I will forgive your corruptions and your sins. I will straighten your crooked heart. I will take out your heart of stone, he says in Ezekiel, and I will give you a heart of flesh, and I will write my law upon it, and I will cause you to walk in my ways. I will give you everlasting life. I will redeem your suffering, and I will transform it into gold. Just come walk with me. You used to disobey me, says God. You did it without a thought. You used to despise me. You used to mock me. You used my name as a curse. You used my person as a joke. You took my good gifts to you, food and sex and sunshine and rain and children and family, and you took those from me, from my hand? And then you hurled abuse back at the giver. You said to yourself, God's not going to do anything. God's a fairy tale. I don't need your fairy tale about some sky daddy. And that God says, hey, come walk with me. Come walk with me, fool, and see who I am and what I can do.
I will straighten out your crooked thinking. And I will bring life to your cold, dead heart. And I will give you the eternity that is hidden there that you secretly long for. Enoch walked with God. And what that means fundamentally is that he involved God habitually in every aspect of his life. Every moment of his life was a life of walking with God. You know what prayer really is? Prayer is just talking with God about what he and I are doing together as we go along. And when you learn how to do it, you can hear him, and God talks back to you. So it's not a one-way conversation. It's a two-way conversation, and it's a wonderful conversation. And he has a million ways of communicating with you. It's just like doing something with any other person, because that's exactly what you're doing. God's not a human being, but he's a person. And God says, walk with me, talk with me, and I'll talk with you. And we'll do things together. And you'll never be alone. You know, it's generally true of persons that they only show up where they're wanted, if they have any choice in the matter at all. And that is also generally true of God. Uh, in, in Hosea chapter 5, verses 12 through 15, God is talking to, through Hosea to Ephraim, which is a, a stand-in for the whole of his people, of the Jewish people of Israel. And he says, you know, you guys are, are not walking with me. You're not obeying with me. And so I'm going to be like a, a moth to you. you know, there's not, a moth is, can, can be annoying. They're not harmful. They're just kind of, kind of up in your face and everything. So I'm, I'm trying to get your attention gently, Ephraim. And he says, if you don't pay attention to that, I'll become like a lion to you. That's a lot harder to ignore. I'll be a roaring lion. You won't be able to ignore me that way, and yet somehow you'll manage to, says God. And so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go away. I'm going to return again to my place until you earnestly seek me. Now, God is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere, but he is not manifest everywhere. In other words, his presence, his sensible and discoverable presence is not anywhere that he doesn't want it to be, and it is not where he is not sought, as a general rule. He makes exceptions from time to time. But as a general rule, if you don't want anything to do with God, he'll leave you be. That's what you want. So walking with God is not just a life of prayer. It's also a life of seeking. God says in Jeremiah chapter 29, you will seek me and you will find me if, if you seek me with your whole heart. And then he says, and I will let myself be found by you. You see, all your seeking wouldn't do a bit of good unless God let himself be found by you. And he says, that's what will happen. If you seek me with your whole heart, I will let myself be found by you. See, God wants to be wanted. He wants to be sought and we never get beyond seeking him. The life of walking with God is also a life of seeking God. And Enoch didn't just think about God. He didn't speculate about God. He didn't argue with other people about God. He didn't read about God. He didn't talk about God. Enoch walked with God. 
and he sought God moment by moment in the walking. Let me ask you this morning, are you seeking God? Notice I didn't ask you, are you in a small group? Or do you attend Sunday school? Or do you have a Bible reading plan? Or do you keep a journal? Or do you have a regular quiet time? You can do all of those things diligently for their own sakes and never seek God through them. And you can seek God without any of those things in your life because Enoch did. You should regularly evaluate your spiritual practices and ask of each one of them, is this helping me seek God? And if it isn't, then get rid of it. It's a waste of time. Focus on seeking God. Notice also that there was a beginning to the time when Enoch began walking with the Lord. It says he lived 65 years, and then he fathered Methuselah. And then it said after he fathered Methuselah, he walked with God for 300 years. So in other words, there was something about the birth of that boy and the world that he brought that boy into that caused Enoch to begin walking with God. You see, I think it's that way for a lot of us. We, we get to the point where when we're young, we don't think we need God. We don't, we're not interested in walking with him. We've got our own agenda and our own things to accomplish. And then we have a child, and we realize we're responsible. And we realize the world is a very scary place, and I'm very small and very stupid, and I need a lot of help. There's a lot of people that, uh, that seek God and begin walking with God after they have a child. You see, no one is born walking with God. The Christian is formed, not born, if we can put that anachronistically. You don't accidentally bumble into a life where you walk with God. It's intentional. You might bumble into God, but after that, you've got to intentionally walk with Him. It is grounded in a sense that God exists, that he is there, that he is the kind of God who wants to walk with you and who wants to be with you, and he is to be approached in our day through Jesus Christ alone. In the words of Hebrews 11, you have to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him if you want to draw near to him. Now, this can be a very small very tentative, very ignorant faith in the beginning. It can be just a little spark. It can be just a, a God, God, I believe, sort of. Please help my unbelief, though. And that's all it takes. You see, around here, we actually believe that that spark of faith itself is a gift from God. And when we first seek to walk with God, it's because behind the scenes, God was already working and seeking us. There are some Wesleyan Arminians among us who would call that provenient grace. And there are some Calvinists who would call that electing grace. And we would differ on some of the details. But we would both agree that no one begins a life of walking with God unless God first makes the first move. There's a wonderful old hymn that's sung to the tune of Finlandia, which is also the tune to Be Still My Soul. It's called, I Sought the Lord and Afterwards I Knew. And it goes like this, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. 
No, I was found, was found of thee. God is a God who not only invites you to walk with him, he also enables it to happen. He invites everyone without distinction and he says, come and walk with me. Whoever hears his voice and earnestly comes will never hear him say, no, not you, I didn't, I didn't mean you. Whosoever will may come. And whosoever comes, he will in no wise cast out. And he has expressly said that in his word and that is no contradiction with the doctrines of grace that we call Calvinism. I want to just very briefly make two other observations, and then we're done for this morning. First of all, Enoch walked with God in an exceedingly evil age. Spurgeon puts it this way. Enoch lived in a day of mockers and despisers. We know that from his prophecy in Jude. He lived when few loved God, and those who professed faith were drawn aside by the seductions of the daughters of men. He lived in the, in the close of those primitive times when long lives produced great sinners, and great sinners invented great provocations of God. And yet Enoch walked with God, and he did it in a way that bore witness to God and the goodness of God's ways. His life was a peaceful one. It was a happy one. It was a holy one. It was an honored one. He lived a simple, good, and quiet life with his God. You say, well, how do you know that? You say, because it doesn't talk about any drama. It just says he had Methuselah, and that's drama enough. And he had other sons and daughters. Okay, that's enough of a burden right there. And then he walked with God for 300 years, and then God took him home. One day God said, hey, Enoch, we've been walking for a long time today, haven't we? And Enoch said, yes, we have, Lord. Hey, Enoch, it's, it's a long way to your house, and it's late. Yes, it is, Lord. I know you're tired, Enoch. Yes, I am, Lord. Why don't you just come to my house instead? And God took him. We also live in a wicked generation. Most of us are scared of it. But if you walk with God, you don't need to be. Last thing I want you to notice is that Enoch was missed. He was missed. It says in Hebrews 11.5 that he was not found. He was not found. In other words, people were looking for him. He was important to somebody, several somebodies actually. You see, when you walk with God, it transforms your character, and it becomes like the character of the Lord Jesus, especially as it's shown to us in his life in the scriptures. It's a holy character, to be sure. And there is a lifelong and increasingly successful battle with indwelling sin, and there's a refusal to just go with the flow of the wicked generation around you and to refuse to agree with their silly and their evil distortions of reality. But increasingly, you stop doing so out of arrogance or an attitude of haughty pride or fear or superiority, and instead you do so out of kindness and patience you learn to love those who hate you. You learn to bless those who curse you. You learn to pray for those who persecute you. You learn to do good to those who do evil to you and despitefully use you, often perversely. This process starts with those who are farthest from the center of our lives, and only with time and maturity does it move inward to cover our relationships with those closest to us. 
because there are deep wounds that a husband and a wife or a parent and a child or a brother and a sister can inflict on each other. And many years of daily in and out nearness leaves us with wounds that are rubbed raw. So very often, we become patient and kind last of all for those who are closest to us. But it should be your great goal to especially envelop those relationships in grace and repentance. And when you do, you live a life that is such that when you are gone, you will be missed. I, I know a lot of people who have lived lives, and when they're gone, their family says, well, I'm sad, but not that sad. They did a lot of damage while they were here. They didn't seem to be a bit sorry about it. They were doing it right up to the end. And they're gone, and I'm glad that's over. But I'm not sad. Walking with God means you become the kind of person who will be missed. Our God delights to impart his deep goodness to us as an act of grace that glorifies him and shows his character. I want to close with the story, the true story, of somebody who lived like that. His name was Polycarp, and he had personally been a disciple to the apostle John, who was the longest lived of all of the apostles. He probably died somewhere around 98 to 100 A.D. And as an old man, Polycarp was the bishop of the church in Smyrna in Asia Minor, which is in present-day Turkey. And there was a persecution against the Christians there, and it broke out. And the believers were being fed to the wild beasts in the arena, and the crowd was just eating it up. And the crowd began to call for the Christians' leader. Send us Polycarp, they said. Find Polycarp. We want to kill Polycarp. So the authorities sent out a search party to bring him in. They tortured two slave boys to reveal where Polycarp was being hidden, and he was found. It was a Friday afternoon. Polycarp was resting upstairs in a country home, and they came in like an armed posse, as if they were arresting a dangerous criminal. Polycarp's friends wanted to sneak him out, but he refused, and he said, God's will be done. And in one of the most touching instances of Christian grace imaginable, Polycarp welcomed his captors as though they were his friends, and he talked with them, and he ordered that food and drink be served to him, and then he made one request. Can I have one hour to pray upstairs before you take me away? And the, and the leader of the posse said, yes. And so they sat downstairs while Polycarp was upstairs praying, and they overheard his prayers, which went on for two long hours. And they began to have second thoughts. What in the world were they doing arresting an old man like this? Despite the cries of the crowd, the Roman authorities saw the senselessness of making this aged man a martyr. And so when Polycarp was brought into the arena, the proconsul actually pled with him and said, curse Christ and I will release you. And Polycarp uttered his most famous saying, 86 years I have served him. He has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Proconsul was looking for a way out. He said, uh, do this, old man. Just swear by the genius of the emperor, and that will be sufficient. That was sort of like the spirit of the emperor. 
And to do this would be a, the recognition of a pagan god and pagan religion. And Polycarp said, look, man, if you imagine for a moment that I would do that, then I think you pretend that you don't know who I am. Hear me plainly. I am a Christian. There were more requests. As they were resisted, people got angry. Polycarp stood firm. So the proconsul threatened him and, and said, I'm going to throw you to the wild beasts. And he said, well, bring them forth. I, I would change my mind if it meant going from a worse state to a better, but I would never change my mind to go from wrong to right. And so his patience was gone, and the proconsul said, never mind about the animals, burn him alive. And Polycarp said, you threaten a fire that burns for an hour and is over, but the judgment on the ungodly is forever. So a fire was prepared, and Polycarp lifted his eyes to heaven and prayed, and he said, Father, I bless you that you have deemed me worthy of this day and hour that I might take a portion of the martyrs in the cup of Christ. Among these may I today be welcomed before thy face as a rich and an acceptable sacrifice. And as the flames engulfed him, the believers who were watching noted that it smelled not like burning flesh, but like a loaf of bread baking. He was finished off by the stab of a dagger and his followers gathered his remains like precious jewels and they buried them on February 22nd, which is a day to this day that is set aside by the church to remember him. The year was probably about 155. And in the strange way known only to the eyes of faith, it was a day of triumph, not a day of tragedy. Polycarp lived walking with God, 86 years, and died in such a way that he was missed. May it be so with you and I.